What a great day already. I'm going to try not to screw it up. Uh, I was there when uh, Dr. Barber spoke at the Wild Goose, and it was a moving, moving experience. I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity to uh, highlight some of these individuals from the past and those those who are actually making a, uh, a mark on our communities and our culture today. Um, we don't always agree with everyone. And uh, we don't always agree with everyone within the body of Christ. But that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Jesus wants us to employ unity, not uniformity. And it's good for all of us to hear different perspectives on how the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of heaven is to be fleshed out in this here and now on our earth. I thought the worship was beautiful in song and in playing today. Thank you guys for leading. That was absolutely gorgeous. And uh, thank you for what you guys do week in and week out. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, those who play in our band, who lead through singing and, and through playing, they live with these songs. These songs become prayers for them. And uh, they're not just leading songs. This isn't Jesus karaoke. This is, uh, this is hopefully our, our prayer life. These songs are songs that are meant to sneak into the nooks and crannies of our hearts and minds and to hide themselves there so that when the Spirit prompts us throughout the week, a lyric comes to mind. We sing these things and it shapes us and it forms us. But before we get cranking with what we're going to talk about today, let me just remind us all that... <clears throat> The Grove is not just those in this room. Uh, downstairs, 11th hour is taking place where our teens are being told the story of Jesus. Today, they're dealing with the aspect of holiness. We're actually moving through the Bible. So we've covered Leviticus and Numbers in the last week. And they're talking about what holiness or wholeness is. I want to say thanks to those of you who work with our teens. I see Patrick dunking on the kids with no mercy whatsoever on Wednesday nights in the basketball court. Or Camille or Paula downstairs leading or Braden on Sunday mornings or Todd and Don who are in the sound booth but spend so much time with our kids. When I see you with these teens who are not always the easiest to love in the moment, it inspires me. It reminds me that we're a people of a mission. On this level, in our Wombaland, our koalas and kangaroos, and with our crocs and monkeys. And when I see Tim and Mindy, I see Derek and Kayla, I see Robert, Bonnie, and all the rest, Kathy, who sing with those little ones and hold them and play with them. I'm, I'm reminded that from the earliest age, we need to be forming our community into the story of what it means to be with Jesus. And then upstairs and upstreet right now, there's Lisa and there's Mindy and there's um, Aaron and there's so many more. Heather, when you see them sing and play, and tell stories and break into small groups and 
do weird experiments and play Connect Four until your eyes bleed. It inspires me again to know that we're in good hands because the generation after our generation that's coming up behind us is going to be formed and fashioned in the way of Jesus. And let me just make an unapologetic pitch to you right now. If you're not involved in any of these ministries with our teens or our kids, but you feel like you want to have a hand, we're not asking you to be there every week or whatnot, but we could use your help to serve in all of these different areas to form these young ones. And we need people who not only are good teachers and good with the arts and crafts and can sing and play, but we just need people with the divine gift of patience who can love and sit and hold and be with. It's the ministry of presence. So let me just put that before you today. If you're interested at all in that, see Jeff, see Jody, see Beth, see me, and let's, let's get you working in that. I want to start today uh, in an odd place, and that's, uh, I'm going to read you a parable. It's from a friend of mine uh, who wrote a book called The Fidelity of Betrayal. We'll also look at another piece from another book of his called The Unorthodox, I'm sorry, The Orthodox Heretic. And uh, his name is Pete Rollins, and he kind of uh, deals with parables and teaches how to write them. So I want to start with this today. And so I need your, your imaginations to be awakened, whatever you need to do. Pat yourself on the back, turn the key, take an energy pill, whatever, uh, slurp of your coffee. But open your imaginations and your ears as we read the caretaker's trial. There was once a small town filled with believers who sought to act always in obedience with the voice of God. When faced with difficult situations, the leaders of this community would often be found deep in prayer or searching the scriptures for guidance and wisdom. Late one evening in the middle of winter, a young man from the neighboring city arrived at the gates of the town's little church seeking refuge. The caretaker immediately let him in and seeing that he was hungry and cold, provided a meal and some warm clothes. After he had eaten, the young man explained how he had fled the city because the authorities had labeled him a political dissident. It turned out that the man had been critical of both the government and the church in his work as a journalist. The caretaker brought the young man back to his home and allowed him to stay until a plan had been worked out concerning what to do next. Now, when the priest was informed about what had happened, he called the leaders of the town together in order to work out what ought to be done. And after an intense discussion, it was agreed that the man should be handed over to the authorities in order to face up to the charges that had been made against him. But the caretaker protested, saying, this man has committed no crimes. He's merely criticized what he believes to be injustices perpetrated by authorities in the name of God. What you say may be true, replied the priest, but his presence 
puts the whole of this town in danger. What if the authorities find out where he is and learn that we protected him? But the caretaker refused to hand him over to the priest, saying, He is my guest, and while he is under my roof, I will ensure that no harm comes to him. If you take him from me by force, then I will publicly attest to having helped him and suffer the same injustices as my guest. No. The caretaker was well-loved by the people, and the priest had no intention of letting something happen to him. So the leaders went away again, and this time searched the scriptures for an answer, for they knew that the caretaker was a man of deep faith. And after a whole night of pouring over the scriptures, the leaders came back to the caretaker, saying, We've read the sacred book all through the night and seeking guidance and found that it tells us that we must respect the authorities of this land and witness to the truth of faith through submission to them. But the caretaker also knew the sacred words of Scripture. And he told them that the Bible also asked that we care for those who suffer and who are persecuted. And there and then the leaders began to pray fervently. They beseeched God to speak to them, not as a still, small voice in their conscience, but rather in the way that he had spoken to Abraham and to Moses. They begged that God would communicate directly to them and to the caretaker so that this issue could finally be resolved. <laughs> sure enough, the sky began to darken. God descended from heaven, saying, The priest and elders speak the truth, my friend. In order to protect the town, this man must be handed over to the authorities. Lo, the caretaker, a man of deep faith, looked up to heaven and replied, if you want me to remain faithful to you, my God, then I can do nothing but refuse your advice. For you've already demanded that I look after this man. You have written that I must protect him at all costs. Your words of love have been spelled out by the lines of this man's face. Your text is found in the texture of his flesh. And so my God. I defy you. Precisely so as to remain faithful to you. And with this. God smiled and quietly withdrew. Confident that the matter had finally been settled. Today we pick up. 52-week journey that we began last week with the book, We Make the Road by Walking, by Brian McLaren. This book is a walk through the scriptures that follows a pattern based on spiritual formation, reorientation, and activation. Last week, Jeff started us off on the journey by taking us back into the Gospel of Matthew. It's reminiscent of the Hebrews wandering in the wilderness again. And in the fifth chapter of Matthew, we join the crowds being addressed by Jesus in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
Again, as Jeff stated last week, we from these large mountains in the Appalachians perhaps should call this the Sermon on the Incline. As those mountains certainly do not add up to ours. And in this preamble to Jesus' longest recorded sermon and teaching, we find Jesus calling us into a new identity. An identity not rooted in our background, not derived from our behavior, or even based on our beliefs, but instead an identity based on the fact that we are all blessed because God is on our side. What matters is that Jesus loves us. How incredible that the song so many of us sing is, Children, Jesus loves me, this I know, is the very definitive theological statement in regards to our identity. And so again, we pick up this journey, and we're going to be in Matthew, the passage of chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, as Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to these scriptures. Jesus saying, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this this perhaps is the most important verse in this passage that we'll look at. Verse 20 says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better then the righteousness of the teachers of religious laws and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's so key for us. You see, there was surely a lot of tension in the crowd that day as Jesus challenged the religious convictions of his time, his culture, his context. And perhaps that tension was felt most acutely by those belonging to two groups, the conformists and the non-compliance. Many in the crowd stuck to the familiar road of tradition, playing by the rules, leading conservative, conventional, and respectable lives. They were worried that Jesus was too, too different, too non-compliant. Others in the crowd, a different group, ran on a very different road. Unfettered by tradition, they gladly bent any rule that got in their way. They were worried that Jesus wasn't different and defiant enough. When Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, you can imagine the traditionalists in the crowd felt relieved because that was what they felt or feared he was about to do. 
when he added, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill, they must have tensed up again. Wondering what he could possibly mean by fulfill. Then when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, the non-traditionalists would have looked dismayed. How could anyone be more righteous than the fastidious crowd? As Jesus continued, it became very, very clear, crystal clear, that he was proposing a third way that neither the compliant nor the non-compliant had ever considered before. Aliveness, which is what we're talking about today, a path to new aliveness. Aliveness won't come through unthinking conformity to tradition, he tells them, and it won't come from defying tradition either. It will come only if we discern and fulfill the highest intent of tradition, even if doing so means breaking with the details of tradition in the process. If tradition could be compared to a road that began in the distant past and continues to the present, Jesus dares to propose propose that the road is not finished yet. To extend the road of tradition into the future, to fulfill its potential, we must first look back to discern its general direction, then... Informed by the past, we must look forward and dare to step beyond where the road currently ends. Venturing off the map, so to speak, into new territory. To stop where the road of tradition currently ends, Jesus realizes would actually end the adventure. And bring the tradition to its standstill. So faithfulness doesn't simply allow us to extend the tradition and to seek to fulfill it unexplored potential. It requires us to do so. So the question that McLaren proposes and seeks to address in this chapter is, so then what does it mean to fulfill the tradition? And it's here in this passage That Jesus offers the crowd a series of examples or illustrations regarding what fulfilling the tradition might look like. He begins with addressing the topic of anger and violence. Picking up with verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone... You are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting the sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And when you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. See, Jesus here starts with tradition equals don't murder. You've heard it said. Moses said unto you, don't murder. And this is a good start to be sure. But the tradition doesn't simply want us to stop at the point of not murdering. It wants us to fulfill the intention or the spirit of the law. 
So first, Jesus says, root out the anger that precedes the physical acts that lead to murder. Second, Jesus calls us to deal with the verbal violence of name-calling, labeling, and othering that precedes, again, the physical act of violence that, that leads to murder. And then Jesus urges us to engage in preemptive reconciliation. In other words... What Jesus is saying here is whenever we detect a breach in a relationship, we don't need to determine who is at fault. The intention of tradition isn't merely to be in the right. The goal is to be in right relationship. So we are to deal with that breach quickly and proactively seeking reconciliation. Being in a right relationship, not merely avoiding murder, was the intent of the tradition all along. And it's that kind of preemptive reconciliation Jesus teaches will help us to avoid the chain reactions of offense, revenge, and counteroffense that leads to murder, and that keep our court systems busy and our prison systems full. After extending the road in the area of violence, Jesus moves to four more issues, each deeply important both to individuals and societies. He talks about sexuality, he talks about marriage, and he talks about oaths and revenge. In each case, conventional religious morality, which Jesus calls the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, focus on not doing external wrong, not murder. Not committing adultery, not committing illegal divorce, not breaking sacred oaths, not getting revenge. But for Jesus, true aliveness focuses on transforming our deepest desires. Read with me verse 27. As you no long ago, God forbade his people to commit adultery. You may think you have abided by his commandment to walk the straight and narrow. But I tell you this, any man who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye leads you into sin, gouge it out and throw it into the garbage. For better you lose one part of your body than march your entire body through the gates of sin and into hell. And if your right hand leads you into sin, cut it off and throw it away. For better you lose one part of your body than march your entire body through the gates of sin into hell. And here's something else. You've read in Deuteronomy that anyone who divorces his wife must do so fairly. He must give her the requisite certificate of divorce and send her on her way free and unfettered. But I tell you this, unless your wife cheats on you, you must not divorce her, period. Nor are you to marry someone who's been married and divorced. For a divorced person who remarries commits adultery. So regarding sexuality, the tradition requires you to avoid adultery. But Jesus says to extend this road. To go further and deeper by learning to manage your internal lustful desires. Regarding divorce, you can try to make it legal in the eyes of society as tradition requires. But Jesus challenges you to go further and deeper by desiring true fidelity in your heart. Regarding oaths. You can play a lot of silly verbal games to shade the truth, or you can go further and deeper, desiring simple true speech, saying what you mean and meaning what you say. 
verse 33. You've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. They didn't have uh, Grecian um, back in that day. Just say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. And then regarding retaliation against injustice, you can react in ways that play right into unjust systems or you can go further and deeper, transisting, uh, transcending the very systems themselves. Here Jesus gets very practical. As we know, the Jewish people are under the authority of Rome and as such are subject to law and customs that would breed fear, resentment, and the desire for rebellion and retributive violence. He gives the example of turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Here Jesus offered them a creative alternative. Stand tall and courageously turn the other cheek, he said. In doing so, choosing nonviolent strength, courage, and dignity, they would model a better way of life for their oppressors rather than mirroring the violent examples they were setting. The second illustration he gives here is that if someone sues you for your outer garment, give them your inner garment as well. Yes, your generosity leaves you exposed, but your nakedness also exposes the naked greed of your oppressors. And then finally, walking the second mile. You see, often a Roman soldier would order a civilian of an occupied nation to carry his pack for a mile. If the civilian refused to do so, he would show courage and self-respect, but probably end up dead or in jail. Most would comply, but once again, doing so would reinforce the impressor's sense of superiority and uh, their own sense of humiliation. Jesus tells his disciples to surprise their oppressors by volunteering to take the pack. A second mile. The first mile may be forced upon them, but the second mile they will walk free. The first mile, they are oppressed. But the second mile, they transcend their oppression and treat their oppressor as a human being, demonstrating the very human kindness that that oppressor was failing to practice. You see, with all of these things, neither the compliant in the crowd nor the defiant could imagine such creative responses. Jesus is helping their moral and their social imaginations come alive. And this is the point we are making today when we urge you to embark or continue on this new path of aliveness. The path requires more than the rote, mindless, and uninspired obedience. And while also requiring that we stay Informed by and in tune with the way this path has been formed up to this point in history. It requires imagination and most importantly, it requires a listening to the Holy Spirit. Take this parable entitled The Third Mile. Once again from Pete Rollins as an illustration of what Jesus is calling us to in order that we might rightly continue the path to aliveness. One day, a small group of disciples who had embraced the way of Jesus early in his ministry heard him preaching by the side of a dusty road. 
As they crowded around, they heard Jesus say, the law requires you carry a pack for one mile, but I say carry it freely for two. The disciples were deeply impressed by these words, for at the time, a Roman soldier had the legal right to demand that a citizen carry his pack for a mile as a service to the empire. This teaching not only allowed the disciples to turn this oppressive law into an opportunity to demonstrate kingdom values, but also presented them with an opportunity to suffer in some small way for their faith. As it was common for soldiers to evoke the law, a small band of believers soon developed a reputation for their actions. Roman soldiers would often hope that the citizens they asked to carry their packs would be among these disciples. And often a small bond of friendship would develop between a soldier and the followers of the way. After a year had passed, this custom had become so established in the group that it became a defining characteristic of their shared life. The leaders would frequently refer to the teachings of Jesus and emphasize the need to carry a pack of the Roman soldier for two miles as a sign of one's faith and commitment to God. So happened that Jesus heard about this community's work and on his way to Jerusalem took time to visit them. The leaders eagerly gathered all the members of the group to hear what Jesus would say. And once everyone had gathered, Jesus addressed them. Dear brothers and sisters, you are faithful and honest, but I've come to you with a second message. For you failed to understand the first. Your law says that you must carry a pack for two miles. My law says carry it for three. You see, to treat the Bible as a textbook providing us with an ethical blueprint concerning how we ought to live requires that we approach it in a certain way. It means that we must attempt to excavate specific answers or some system from the text that will direct what we should do in particular situations. Once the answers are worked out, then we can choose whether or not to act accordingly and judge whether others are making the correct ethical decisions. Yet the question must be asked as to whether the Bible can be treated in this way without doing the teachings of Jesus a great injustice. In other words, we must ask whether the scriptures really offer us concrete ethical answers that can be turned into some religious code of conduct or whether Jesus was actually opening up a radically different approach to living. What if Jesus was not offering his followers an ethical system to follow, but rather was inviting them to enter into a life of love that transcends ethics of life, of love, and liberty that dwells beyond religious laws. The story above explores this idea, but by imagining what Jesus would say to those who had taken his teachings about carrying a pack two miles literally, seeing it as an ethical injunction and a religious law. You see, in their very obedience to the teaching, the group described in the story fundamentally misunderstood and undermined the radical nature of the message. Their literal rendering of the teaching, far from taking it too seriously, ended up failing to take it seriously enough. It's wrong to condemn the disciples in the story, for they were trying to do something rather than nothing. However, a real danger lurks in the sincere attempt to carry out the teachings of Jesus in a literal manner. Namely, the danger of absorbing the ways of living in excess of the law back into the law. The radical way of Jesus provides a much more difficult challenge that which is demanded by the law. For while the law gives us a bottom line way to live, the way of love 
calls us beyond the law. Love pushes us beyond duty. Rather than stopping there and act when we don't know for sure what the ethical thing to do. If the ethical question is what must be done, love adds, I will do more. If our ethical compass is not able to give us a clear direction to travel, love sets out anyway. The love that Jesus is describing provides a way when ethical demands have had their say or do not know what to say. Is this not what Jesus is calling us to? To live beyond the law so as to fulfill it. He expressed a love that pushed further than any law could express or commands or dictate. He extended a revolutionary life that always sought to be faithful to the law by outdoing it and outstripping it. This is the same type of uh, love and fulfilling of the spirit of tradition that resulted in what Walter Wink would call the Jerusalem Protocol. Just very quickly, and you can research this later or talk to me more about it later, but in in his uh, book, he, he talks about the Jerusalem Protocol that says... In the early story of the apostles and the disciples, the followers of Jesus, after the resurrection in the book of Acts, after the church has been formed by the Holy Spirit, we see in Acts 10 that Peter is compelled to move beyond the customary kosher law. He's on top of the roof. He's hungry. He has a vision from God three times where all kinds of unclean animals are let down on a blanket. And God says, take and eat. And he says, I can't do it. I'm a good Jew. Three times this happens. And then at the third time, people show up and they say, we need to go to Cornelius' house. He's a Gentile. He shows up and at that house, Cornelius has been saved. He's been transformed by the Holy Spirit and birthed into the new kingdom. And it's here that Peter says, I get it. Love dictates that for me to extend the tradition that God began... I have to extend beyond the kosher law because if the Gentiles are going to be welcomed into our family, if they're going to be grafted into the vine, we're going to have to be able to sit at the same table and eat the same things. You move ahead a couple of chapters and you have the the council of Jerusalem where because of this situation and things like it, Paul and Peter are saying to the other apostles, the Gentiles are being saved. What do we do? How can we be true to God and true to our Jewish customs and at the same time follow the way of Jesus and open this up for everyone as Jesus did? And they sit there. And this is when and where basically the decision was made that you didn't have to be circumcised to enter into the way. Now listen, circumcision was the defining mark and characteristic of what it meant to be a person of the kingdom of God, meant to be an Israelite. When, when God established the covenant of circumcision, he says, this is for you and for all generations to come. And yet here, the very tradition is defied so as to fulfill the greater intent of the, of the law, which was to welcome more and more people into the kingdom of heaven. Over and over again in scripture, we see that it's the law of love that should win out. 
Finally, in this passage, Jesus says, with verse 43, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'll conclude with this piece. It's from uh, another gentleman I've had the pleasure to, to learn under. His name is Leonard Sweet, and he's written a book called I Am a Follower, The Way, the Truth, and Life of Following Jesus. He says this. The imitative initiative is found throughout the Bible. Leviticus 20, 26, for instance, records God's directions to his, to his people to be holy to me because I am the Lord and holy. And 1 Peter 1, 16 repeats the directive. Matthew 5, 48, which we just read, instructs followers of Jesus to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Luke 6, 36 gives similar directions about being merciful. And Ephesians 5, 1 urges disciples to follow God's example as dearly beloved children. The Roman and Orthodox churches have traditionally interpreted such passages in terms of what they call theosis, or the process by which a person becomes more hospitable to God and more like him over time. The doctor of theosis instructs us that the greatest imitation of God is being in union and communion with God, and this can only be accomplished by the grace of God. The Protestant doctrine of sanctification emphasized by John Wesley is based on a similar idea the Lutherans stress instead the idea of conformitas, Latin for being formed in or with. The specifics of these interpretations differ, sometimes significantly. All traditions stress the disciples are not copiers of Christ, but continuing incarnations of Jesus' life and love. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. See, when Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, he was not implying that he was a perfect man. His epistles made it clear that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only source of righteousness. What he was saying is that Jesus' presence in a follower creates an observably transformed human being. And together, these transformed human beings form an unmistakable Jesus community. That is capable of transforming the world into a Jesus kind of place. Such a community is a gift, a divine creation that cannot be forced and manufactured. That's why authentic community is so dangerous and so diverse. A community of faith, a gathering of followers, constantly moves, changes, grows, creates. The community walk with Christ is a walk in the way, truth, and life of Jesus, the Lord and creator of all life. Each follower becomes baptized by the Spirit into the mystery of the nature of Christ and consecrated in the image of the creator. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega of the world, calls all children of God to join this community and to participate in God's tapestry of life. We have our identity in Christ because God is on our side. Jesus 
loves me, this I know, is how we know who we are.